This insert is brought to you by Radio K Pulpit 7 to 9 a.m. Please visit kpulpit.co.za. This week on Voice of Change, I am going to be celebrating Women's Day. And yes, okay, it's 11th of August. It's after the 9th, but I pray that you have had a wonderful, wonderful day. And then it was just a holiday, but it was a day to really think about and reflect on why we have Women's Day. And no, we do not hold it against you. If you were out and about and you enjoyed your Women's Day and you didn't give a thought to anything else, well, today on this show, we're going to be having a great time together. Because we are going to be giving a little bit of a thought to a woman who has played a role in our country, in our city, in our nation, a woman who played an important role in our parliament, in the first democratically elected parliament, a woman who was chosen as the Commissioner of Gender Equality. And she is also an incredible woman who's just a blessing to every single one of us, a woman of deep faith and a deep spiritual conviction. So I'm going to be joined on the show today by Professor Gertrude Fester. Now, Gertrude was an anti-apartheid activist. She also obtained her PhD in 2007 in London at the School of Economics. And she was a member of the African National Congress, the ANC, right back in the day. And Fester was charged for treason in 1988. And she went to prison. She also spent quite some time in solitary confinement and she served for a term in parliament before she was actually appointed as our commission of gender equality and she has taught in many different organizations been part of many different organizations taught at different universities including out in rwanda at uct and she's just an incredible woman with such a powerful powerful story but not only a powerful story just powerful convictions and truths that remind us of who we are and what we need to be thinking about today and here on the show i want to reflect on the history of women's day and no we're not going to be getting into the all-important women's march of 1956 which we all probably know about or should know about by now as the reason for why we celebrate the 9th of august that march that led 20,000 women up to the union buildings. We're not going to be talking about that, but we really are going to be talking about Gertrude's life. And then also we're going to touch on how we as people can really rise up to the challenge to create a better world for women and for children, especially the girl child in Africa. Gertrude has actually just released her prison memoirs, which we're going to touch on at the end of the show. A life of working for the better of every single person in our country. Not just some, not just a few, not just those over there and none over here, but someone whose heart is ready for the rainbow nation of South Africa. So it's going to be so great. Just settle down, tuck yourself in, get that warm cup of coffee in your hands and just settle on down in front of the heater if you have to or with your blanket on because Gertrude is going to be sharing with us so much and it's going to be a great show can't wait to be with you for the next hour celebrating women and celebrating us how we can move forward in our nation so Gertrude's with me after this enjoy some music but don't go anyway Gertrude it's so good to have you with me today on Voice of Change on the show on K Pulpit so thank you so much I know this is not your first time on the show but today we're going to really be touching on your life story and your incredible exciting book that you've released before we get into that welcome and i hope that you're doing super well today 
Yes, I am. Thanks very much. And thank you for the um, opportunity to, to be part of your, your show. It's such a pleasure. It's so nice to, to have you with me. Now, like I said, we are touching on your life story today, which is an incredible life. It's hard to kind of think we have to touch on, you, you know, your incredible life of 70 years, I believe, in just half an hour of a show. So we're going to highlight a few, I think, points of interest and touching points and we're going to highlight a few today and encourage people after the show, you know, go on over to get the book for the full story. But I want to dive right in. You were held in solitary confinement for more than 100 days for your anti-apartheid work, for your involvement with the resistance. And that confinement actually left quite an intense mark on you. And I'd love for you to just shed some light on that. You know, how did you come to be involved in the struggle in anti-apartheid work? And also this intensity of being held in solitary confinement for a very, very long time. And it's a tragic reality. It should not have been. And I would love to know, how did you come to be involved in this? And how did this actually happen that, that you ended up in solitary confinement? Well, the first thing I, I need to emphasize is that I am but one of the many millions who've probably been in solitary confinement. And I think Winnie Mandela was in for 118 days or something like that. Mm. And then Ruth first as well. So in terms of political struggle and women political activists, it was almost um, quite common, point one. Mm. Point two, I actually grew up in a woman-headed household in the sense that my dad passed on when we were very little. And I actually remember all the old uncles and patriarchs around my mother telling her that we must all go and work. Now, your audience may be aware that in many uh, black families, this is actually almost the norm. When the breadwinner dies, the children all go and do work. You see, you all leave school. Hmm. And my mother was adamant. She said, my daughters will all have professions and I will work my fingers to the bone. So there she was, woman alone, being almost coerced by all the family male elders, you know. Hmm. So I always say she was the first feminist I met. Hmm. And yes, we, we, I'm, I'm the first person in in our family, but even in the broader family that actually went to university, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that was the first issue. Then also as a girl child, I did notice the, I went to a, a wonderful school called St. John's. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we were in a very, very mixed area, Windermere, Kensington, Windermere. And it was a really, you know, in terms of if you want to use the the different race groups, the black Mm -hmm. race groups, we were all very, very mixed. And then came group areas acting, people and friends had to leave. And also my church is one of the first slave churches in in the city, St. Stephen's, named after the first Christian martyr because the building was stoned by by either the free burghers who didn't like the idea that the slaves being christianized all the other story is that the muslim slaves the other muslim slaves didn't like that idea so anyway and my church oh. is in, in 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 the city and the majority of people in the church were lived in Burkhap and in district six and mm. they all had to move so there was something wrong with this country that that is pretend that is branded as a christian country 
Mm. So that was point one. And then also the poverty around one. And um, I think I mentioned it in the book and elsewhere that my, my parents believed that Catholic schools are very good. And yes, they were very good. Mm-hmm. And I went to St. John's Catholic School and the church, St. John's church was in the middle. And on the other side of the school was the Holy Cross Convent, which was the white school. Mm. And we were the black school. And every single Friday, we'd go to Holy Mass. But what was ironic is that there'd be two streams of God's children, as we all knew we were, or rather still are, but completely um, hostile. No one looked at anyone. They sat on one side of the church and we on the other side of the church. Hmm. And there there was no interaction whatsoever. Hmm. And of course, it was unsettling. Um, yeah. And then, of course, there were all the beaches, our favorite beach, Irene Bay, Boulders, where our Sunday school went. Then we couldn't go and all the people, the friends left from District 6. So all these impressions on me. Mm-hmm. And also that boys actually, you know, just see, I seem to have had more freedom than girls. So yeah. that was the start, I think, you know, of, of just seeing this inequality around you race class gender poverty and and we're a christian country and then the hypocrisy of that Mm. i also need to say that our church is um it's again a bit of an aberration it's the only black church in the afrikaans in here mudderkerk in 18 Seven, this church applied to be a member of the Mutterkerk. Now remember the sending and the other churches were not formed yet. Yeah. So we were accepted, but it's that very same synod, October 1857, where it was agreed that that God's children should not have Holy Communion together and that they should be separate churches and separate Holy Communion. Mm. So you see the ambivalence of, of yeah. our history. Yes. So, yes. So, and then my dad was in the church council and every year there'd be the Senate and the minister who was white had to be accompanied with an, with an elder or a member of the church council. And on the occasion my dad went and also other brothers, brother Prince and brother Prince, they were given a tiki and said, and were told, you can't eat with us, go and buy yourself something at the shop. Wow. So you see, you, you're in this church of God where we're all God's children. Mm. And it, it does have sorts of puzzles on, on how do we teach, how do we interpret mm. the love of God and we're all made in the image of the creator. So, mm. so yes, those, those were, were questions, were issues, were concerns. And, mm. um, and yes, just to say that even though I was in the anti-apartheid movement, we were a women's organization. It was for the empowerment of women, United okay. Women's Organization. It became United Women's Congress. And we were there for the empowerment of all women. And what was quite wonderful about this organization, I must say, we mm. had more than 6,000 members at some stages, is that even though it was formed in the height of rigid apartheid, 18, 1981, April, we had branches from Gardens to Guguletu, from Mitchell's Plain wow. to Macassar, Manenberg, and yes, so we, you know, we broke down all those barriers. Mm. So, and diverse, it sounded very, di- was it diverse at that stage, as diverse as it could be? Mm. We used to have one, what was called a uniting theme. Mm-hmm. So all the branches would work on high cost of living. And that's when we actually learned that um, 
the bread subsidy was was cut. Okay. And that South African government is spending one million rand, one million rand a day on fighting Swapo in Namibia. Wow. So you see, so even though we started off with high cost of living, which affected women and children and families, it had a broader political lesson for us by doing mm. that. So yes, we had the one theme that united all these diverse branches, but mm. each branch could do what is important to their area. So Claremont branch, for example, wrote a booklet and did interviews with the forced removals in Harfield Road, okay. Claremont branch. Mm, yeah. Weinberg branch had a partnership with KTC, which is the informal settlement and building and working on a creche. And and gardens branch, again, had workshops with with the domestic workers in the area. And we in Kensington, we were a little bit of middle class. We actually had workshops on what is feminism and how do we do feminism. And then we had a children's group because we wanted to come out to the parents, the mothers. But anyway, then we realized how important working with children is, you know, the non-competitive yeah. games, the values, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, yeah, so each branch did its own work, but we are united uh, um, program of action. Mm-hmm. And then with the state of emergency in South Africa, look, it was in October 1985, Cape Town mm-hmm. became what was called ungovernable. You know, mm-hmm. we just broke the laws, people who just have protests, the schools. Remember post, post-1976, there was a heightened political awareness Mm-hmm. in the country and first the youth started and then the women's groups and and then the the civics and all sorts of structures emerged so yes mm-hmm. um so united women's organization too and then with the state, state of emergency uh, i think that what they tried to do in cape town was to have this big treason trial yeah. so they arrested a whole yeah. lot of people and I was the last one to be detained in, in May 1988. So other people who were arrested in, in 1987, they were all held also in solitary confinement for mm-hmm. six months or even more. Mm-hmm. And so I was the last person to be detained. And I believe that they thought they're going to use this trial as a deterrent. But of course, it actually made people more angry and more politicized. And they called our trial the Rainbow Trial because firstly, it was 14 accused And we were five women, and we also represented various religions, groups, trades, university lecturers, trade union leaders, etc., etc. So it was a really cross-section of our society in this trial. Mm. Well, Mm. it's actually, it's it's so incredible to hear you sharing this because obviously as someone that loves the history of not only our country but our city you know Cape Town was really quite dynamic and like you say you know there was that state of emergency there was a time where people were rising up in our very city where we live you know our city played such a huge role the people of our city the people of Cape Town and I think that that is so incredible as well the power the that 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 heart that people have carried in the Cape, as we often call it, is so incredible. But like you're saying, this trial that happened, the, the Rainbow Trial, and it eventually did fizzle out and the charges against you were dropped, which is quite crazy because all the things that you went through, being held in solitary confinement, being accused, being on this this trial, it, it it's 
it's quite something to consider, you know, it just fizzled out and things were going to be changing very soon after that. But again, is it something that, you know, while you were writing the book and you were reflecting on exactly what you went through in prison while you were in solitary confinement, was it quite traumatic to actually revisit that again? And to, I'm sure that that must take quite a toll on you because this is your life. You've lived it. You know, we are hearing what you're sharing with us, but these are your memories as well. This is your life story. Well, I need to also emphasize that I would not have managed to survive solitary confinement if I didn't have God in my life. Mm. The, the point of solitary confinement is to be mentally and physically tortured. In fact, Emma Mashanini in her book, Strikes Have Followed Me All My Life, wrote, and the Bura did not torture me because they knew that my mind was torturing me. And I like to quote that because I think that was exactly what happened. I would have pseudo hallucinations. I would see trees walking into the cell. I'd see my father. I think my father, he thinks I see my father. Then I realized, no, 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 that's what Hamlet said. Yes. And the trees coming in, the trees, are these the trees from Berman who'd come into Dunsinane and Macbeth? So, you know, there was all these crazy things wow. happening. And the psychiatrist said that it was the, um, it was the creation of the brain to be used to being very, very active. You look, I was a universe, I was a teacher trainer, huh? Mm-hmm. And a very full and exciting and demanding life. And now suddenly you're in four walls and you just see nothing but, you know, and it was raining, it was cold and, you know, yeah. that's where you are. Yeah. So yes, yeah. my mind. And as I say, if I did not have God in my life, mm-hmm. that was the saving grace. That was, Yes, I had panic attacks or two, and I also said, God, where are you? You're supposed to be ubiquitous. You're supposed to be omniscient. You're supposed to be here. Where are you? So Mm. there were those those moments. But fortunately, the fact that God is my personal savior, I could sing, I could praise, I could, on a Sunday, I'd I'd start the whole sermon. You know, I'd make everything, I'll do whatever happens in the church, I'll have I'll do in the cell, you know, so I really wow. reenacted my whole life and whatever happened outside, I do inside. And then, of course, I took uh, inspiration from people like Nelson Mandela, who was at that time was in prison for 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. And other women in our organization, Mama Shishlangu, Dorothy Shishlangu, hmm. Dorothy Mvatu, Mulder Lucia. I mean, these are women since the 1950s who have been plagued and tortured by the police. So here yeah. am I, you know, little uncle in 1980s. Yeah. So hmm. I took strength from that. And that's when I decided I'm going to compose a play in my head. Now, remember, we don't have any, any, you don't have any writing material. In fact, you have absolutely nothing in your cell except your change of clothing. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have your shower, which is outside, you have to ask for your your face cloth and your toilet. You don't allow to have anything personal. Your Mm -hmm. watch, everything is taken away. Mm -hmm. So it's just you and your thoughts. And that's why I'm saying if I did not have a living, wonderful God whom I know loves me, Yeah, I would not have managed. Mm. Yes, there were thoughts about attempting suicide because you know, that's mm-hmm. what solitary confinement does. Yeah. And many people who have yeah. been in solitary confinement, in fact, even people in our, in our trial, you know, attempted suicide, but fortunately they were discovered, you know, and in mm. time and pumped the tablets, they kept all the tablets, et cetera, et cetera. So I did see the toilet and I thought, oh, you know, I can drown myself in the toilet bottom. And immediately I said, no, God, please be with me. Mm. 
mm. he would be. Yeah. Mm. And 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 again, you know, the the purpose of solitary is, you know, to just mentally, absolutely create this. I, I was a, a psychologist for a number of years and worked with victims of trauma, all kinds of trauma, and. We doubt, you know, people don't quite get how powerful the mind really is, but in a good way and in a bad way as well. And I think just that reality, but like you are giving us hope today as well by saying, no matter what the circumstance really that you're in or that you find yourself in, if you have a living God that you know personally, that is the saving grace. He can be with you even if you're in solitary confinement, even if you're in a situation that where you see there seems to be no way out. And God, if God is with you, you can, he can help you. You know, it is going to get dark sometimes and you are going to have questions and you might suffer like Job and, and it might be intense and you're going to ask real questions, but if God is with you, you can prevail, you can make it out. And I think that that's a, that's a hope. I think that a lot of people need to hear, especially right now. I know that, you know, it's been a very hard two, three years for for people. And there is sometimes a sense of what is the way out. And I want us to take a really quick song break, but you know what? I don't want you to go anywhere because Gertrude is still with me and we're almost just touching the tip of the iceberg. We're going to get so much deeper into her life. And I want you to kind of sit with this thought that has been shared with you, you know, about that hope. And if you need hope today, I pray that this song will really bless you and minister to your heart. So we're going to take a quick song break. Don't go anywhere. Gertrude is still with me after this. You're with me, Lauren Jacobs, here on Voice of Change today. Welcome to the show if you're just joining, but I hope that you have been with me from the beginning. It's kind of a bit of a Women's Day celebration here on the show today, and I'm joined by Gertrude Fester. And Gertrude was just sharing with us about her time in you know solitary confinement, but also the reality of God. God is living, He is real. And also, you know, there is a hope that we can have. Now, Gertrude, I know that we were talking about the trial, but once, you know, things changed in South Africa, which was a, an incredible moment, you served in the then ANC government and then later went on to be appointed as the Commissioner on Gender Equality. Tell us a bit about that, because you've 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 touched on this a few times while we've, we've been talking. Your heart has really been for women and the girl child. And that is at the center of so much and everything almost of what you have done. So tell us a bit about when things changed and you know, the, that was early days. It was quite a few decades ago already. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I must say it was a privilege and also a very steep learning curve to be a member of parliament. You know, despite what people's impressions are of an easy life, it was long, hard hours. Remember, we were we were constitutional, we are a constitutional democracy, and we couldn't just repeal laws, we had to actually create other laws. So there were really long and hard and difficult times to, to create. For example, the Public Management Finance Act. It mm-hmm. took about four years because, um, you know, there was no accountability in the past of how money was used. Mm-hmm. Money was just given, and there was no 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 accountability and we um used a canadian act and 
sort of learning from other countries what was what you know how to do that and mm. that is why today yes you can actually um, expose what is happening because we have these acts we have the municipal financial um, act as well as the national one you know to to mm. so that and even weekends there were weekend workshops Wow. I remember my lady once, I met my lady, she was, I think she was chief whip then, you know, the current minister, mm. uh, Lady Pandor. And um, it was past 10 and I saw her at, uh, at, at going to a, one of these 7-Eleven cafes. And she says, you know what, here I am, you know, speak, a speaker or a chief, no, no, I wouldn't speak, a chief whip in the house and do working and I come home, there's no bread because you know what, the mother must see to that. So yeah. it was also interesting sharing with other women parliamentarians of how they had this challenging job and yet they mm. had to, to do, in fact, my, one of my students, when I taught in Rwanda, she also interviewed the women parliamentarians there and they had the same story, you know, mm. that they actually had to do really transform because remember now in our country we had to transform laws we had to get new yeah. laws so that we could repeal the apartheid laws you can't just do things in a vacuum yeah so it was long yeah. and hard and i think for example i want to commend how very grassroots women leaders played mm -hmm. the important part in parliament for example lydia compe she was from the transvaal rural action committee in you know in the 1980s and did mm -hmm. wonderful work amongst the um, <clears throat> rural women there. And then she came to parliament. She said, oh, you know, parliament is for educated people. I don't actually, there's no place for me. Mm. And then, you know what she did? She actually thought, well, how can I use my position here in parliament to help my, the rural women where I come from? And that's where she came mm. up with, in consultation with women around the customary marriages the recognition of the customary marriages act oh wow because there were these women in the rural area mm -hmm. living under feudal circumstances mm -hmm. and so what they did is they contacted the um um cals uh cals is uh, the center for applied legal studies at fitz university Mm -hmm. And then we also had in that parliament, we had the joint monitoring uh, committee for the improvement and quality of life of women. And then we worked together to look at the customary law and how you can create a, the recognition of customary marriages act and how that the lives of women, and it's not a perfect act, but at yeah. least it did major transformation in the lives of rural women. And that is just but one example, I think, of, of importance of civil society, academics, women, political activists working together. Then there was the Domestic Violence Act and all these very yeah. key acts, you know, which act we are still working on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a member of parliament then in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And then in 2000, as, um, as a commission on gender equality, the recognition of Muslim personal law. And we actually yes. had a workshop. We had uh, uh, Emmas there, sheikhs there, we had feminist lawyers, and then they'd say, oh, but this Sharia says that, none of Sharia, so we still don't have it, we don't have it, you know, yeah. so there are major challenges, yeah, mm. and of course, we do know that, you know, it is August, but isn't it strange how in August things even seem to be worse for women, mm. so I do, yes. I want to, I want to just go out of your, the, your, um, League of Questions are, and just say that we as communities of faith, we need to really work together mm. with all other structures. There needs to be something to be done. We cannot allow this violence against women and children to continue. In fact, and the violence in general in our country, how do we transform it? Surely, 
you yeah. know, the, 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 the institutions of faith should and can and must do something. Mm-hmm. I drove in Kensington today and where my sister lives just above Fracton. I mean, there were mm-hmm. like seven churches in the mm-hmm. heart of gangland where you hear gunshots in the middle of the night, you know? Yeah. How does it work? Why, do we, why are we confronted with all these contradictions? Mm-hmm. We are a faith-based society in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And you know... Gertrude, that it was so, it's so incredible that you just have gone into this because that was kind of what I wanted to wrap up the next couple of minutes with to actually ask you as we reflect on Women's Day and Women's Month. I went on social media today and saw um, some women that I know, some respected colleagues posting about the stats that show an increase in crimes against women you know and mm-hmm. and again like you you just said it august seems to be worse we saw uh, i think it was a couple of years it was 2019 if you remember i will never forget that august where there was a woman that was killed every single day and more and just resulted in women marching to parliament and it was such a It was an overflow of emotion. You know, it was just that anger and the frustration and the the hardships that we carry. And we're still trying to deal with all of this now. What is how do what is our call to action? What is it now? And also you you started touching on it as well. The challenge to people of faith, because us sitting here and people listening to us, we are people of faith, yet we kind of hang our heads in shame when we say we are a Christian nation, and yet we have the highest levels of rape and gender-based violence. How do we create a better life? You know, how do we? Now, I, I want to say this with deep respect. I'm 70 years old, and I've probably gone to hundreds of different churches and institutions of faith in my life. And the only few times I didn't was when either I was traveling or I was in another country or there wasn't a church around. Mm-hmm. But I've never, I've never heard a sermon around how do we promote the dignity of all people and get rid of gender-based violence and gender-based oppression. Mm. And I'm saying it with deep respect and humility that we really need to do something about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really, you know, I, <clears throat> and, and also in our home. So it's not, look, it's not government. It's not business. It's not in business of faith. It's all of us. It's our yeah. responsibility. How can I, Gertrude, in my little community, how do I make a difference? What can I do? Mm. I can't change the world, but I can in some small way just do something at my place of work, in mm. my family, at my school. If each of us just take just take a little responsibility that, yes, I am my brother and my sister's keeper. Mm. And yes, we are responsible for one another. I mean, we are all made in the image of God. We are all wonderfully loved people by God. So why do we, what does it mean, you know, love thy neighbors yourself? So we must start loving ourselves and then love our neighbors and also the families, you know, it's so sad that the very family, which I think, and again, I'm saying it with, with humility Hmm. and I'm not wanting to be judgmental. Yeah. Because I know that I, in my own weakness, have lots of faults too and can also be patriarchal. Yeah. How is it that the, the family, which is supposed to be the sacrosanct, the 
the kernel, the, the security of our society. How come there's even violence there, you know? Yeah. How do we deal with that? How do we, why do we close our eyes to some of those things? So I think each, and you know, I think the reason why gender equality is so difficult is because it's not something out there. It actually means it starts with me here in my heart, in my attitude, in my thoughts, in my actions, in the way I speak to people. How do I, as a woman, speak to those very women who work so hard Mm. so that, so that and I tease and I say, oh, you know, Pat McFadden, this very famous sub Southern African feminist, <laughs> tease me, I'm a gender diva when we were in the United States at the platform. So, yes, so us gender divas, we can travel around and do all these things and speak on behalf. How do we treat those very women who yes. facilitate our lives and our speeches internationally by looking after the, our homes, our children, our, our, our homework, you know? So mm. it's it's tough. Me and that is why I think gender equality and the trying to get rid of our patriarchal inclinations and our issues around power, you know, it mm-hmm. really and you know, what did Jesus do? I mean, Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, that's you right, know? yeah, Jesus spoke to women who were who were actually um, um, pariahs in the community. Mm-hmm. So Christ came and said, I have come to make all things new. So are we following Jesus' example? Amen. And I following Jesus' example. And that's a challenge. We need to take that challenge today. We need to accept that challenge. And I think of even Jesus' disciples that came around the corner when he was sitting there, not so, and said, why is he speaking to this woman? And that was an issue. It was an issue. And I think that that is the greatest challenge, you know, uh, that we can take with us today, those who are listening. And Gertrude, I want to say thank you so much for being with me. The time for me just completely flew by. And how I'm like wanting to keep you here with me, but also I want to end off this, this interview and this conversation today to say thank you so much for sharing your incredible wisdom with us today. And also I want to say to the listeners, Gertrude's book is released and has just been released and it's incredible and you can get it at the book retailers, at the book lounge here in Cape Town. And it's called Prison Notebook V29578888. Just go and have a look for Gertrude Festa. Yes, go and have a look. What it is. The V is for fro, and that's my prison number. And then in 1988, I was detained. So, if you know, I know people say, what is this? (laughs) So that's my prison number. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Gertrude. Thank you. And may God just richly bless you. I pray that the years that are ahead for you are going to be greater than the years that have even gone, even though the years that have gone before you have been so impactful and powerful. And thank you. I want to say thank you today as a celebrate woman, this woman's month and all year round. But I want to say thank you so much for the legacy that you've left for me and for my generation. And I want to say thank you for what you've done for this country, this nation. And thank you for being a blessing on this earth. And I really mean that from my heart. And I want to pray just that, yeah, just the the days, weeks, years, and, and months ahead for you are just going to be incredible. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you for the opportunity. But I also need to say that I am just but one of the many millions who have really worked hard mm. towards change and are still working hard. And they are wonderful people. And we are really South Africans of incredible people. So we shouldn't allow all these negative things to happen because we are God's children. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Gertrude. Take care.
It has been so good to have you with me on Voice of Change today. Wow, this is the kind of conversation that I love having. Obviously, as a someone that is really interested in the history of our country and who loves celebrating the lives of the individuals, men and women, who have shaped our country and who continue to shape our country and who continue to remind us that all is not lost, but all is not yet won. We still have work to do. Well, that's what it's all about. I love that and I'm just so grateful for Gertrude spending time with us today. Such a privilege to hear her voice on, you know, Kate Pulpit. And it's been so great for her to actually challenge us today. You know, she said something towards the end of our conversation that really impacted me. And I reflect on it myself as someone that believes in creating a world of equality for other people. I know that as Gertrude said, those personally patriarchal you know, mindsets of power are something that we all hold on to. And it's as simple as, you know, this year we witnessed this great historical moment in seeing the very, very first Tour de France for Women happening. A week-long Tour de France for Women just took place now in July after the men's race. And, you know, even while I was watching and, you know, I wanted to sit in front of the TV and support these women every single day as they ride this race, making history, making history for young girls. You know, if you have a daughter that loves cycling and she's little and now you can actually tell her, well, there is a Tour de France. You can pull on the yellow jersey as a girl and you can actually have that dream, whereas girls couldn't dream about that before. But even while I was sitting watching these women racing, I also had thoughts in my mind and some of them sounded like, oh, you know, these women can't do as well as the men do or, oh, these women are not as professional or, oh, these women. And and there's that, that thought of comparing all the time because for so many years, you're just used to watching the men's race and the way that they do things and now you're watching something different. And I found myself feeling deeply, and even as I speak about it, I feel quite emotional because it's it's not okay. It's not okay to be thinking that. It's not okay to be personally thinking that one person is better than another or one doesn't do it as well as another. And I just opened up my heart and said, Abba Father, help me, help me not be like that. Help me not, not do that. And when I was able to do that, I could actually see that that is not the way to be. It's not okay to compare one person to the other sometimes and to say simply because of where they were born or what color their skin is or because they're a man or because they're a woman that they can do things better we all can do the best that we can do and we all bring our own unique self to that so Gertrude's challenge falls heavily on us on all of us to say where is it it may not be you know a men and women thing where is it that in the issue of power I still have prejudice where is it when there's issues of power that I still have these mindsets of comparison how can I do better Because God's word is to love my neighbor like I love myself. God even told these people, Israel, right at the very, very beginning, when he gave those holy laws to his people, he said, do not oppress a foreigner and a stranger among you. Because God has a heart for everybody. He had a heart for the foreigner and the stranger. He had a heart for people who maybe were not part of Israel, but they were there. And God said, don't oppress them. You know, welcome them. Remember where you come from. Remember that you were slaves, you were strangers, and you were foreigners. So may this challenge be with us. And again, let us just, you know, celebrate today the many, many women, those in our families as well, who fought for the lives that we had today. Gertrude's mom fought for her to have education 
generation. I know that your mom, your grandmother, your aunties fought for you too because mine did. And I'm so grateful for them. So let us honor them. Let us just rejoice in who they are. And let us celebrate the women who have paved the way so that, you know what, their floor, you know, their ceiling is actually just our floor today. And that is a powerful thought I want to leave you with. Take care and I can't wait to be with you next week. God bless you. This insert was brought to you by Radio K Pulpit, 7 to 9 a.m. Please visit kpulpit.co.za.